The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors, or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, please email me something funny to say in this intro and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 155 with guest Deborah Carada, recorded live Friday, December 2nd, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASPNet web applications online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who would like to thank Miguel Castro for donating $7.43 to his crappy laptop fund, Carl Franklin! Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jeff, and welcome to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. Finally back in New London after what seems like an eternity on the road and here and there and this and that, finally back behind the controls, behind the old familiar microphone, and uh, as always, my co-host out in Vancouver, British Columbia, Mr. Richard Campbell. It is good to be home, isn't it? The chair feels so nice. And the mic's in the right place, and my gear is running, and my proper headset on. I mean, it's just so good. My gear, I thought I thought I was going to have to uh, really, you know, spend a lot of time with it, and it was, it was just like riding a bicycle. There you are, right back at it again. Right back at it. Smooth yep. as silk. And it's been a long time since we've done a show like this. It really has. Yeah. It's, I, been, it's been months. It's been oct- since October, since, since early Octo- October. Er, early October. And here it is, the first weekend in December, and we're doing .NET Rocks. You know, uh, while we were out on the road, we interviewed some, you know, we were interviewing a lot of people all over the, all over the United States, of course, doing regular work, the stuff that makes the world go round. And in one case... Uh, some guys were mentioning that they were they implemented some features to do soap with Flash. Remember that, Richard? Yeah, yeah, that was very cool. The idea of Flash as the client and being able to go back to some kind of web service. Right, and we of course had not heard of this, so we thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Little did we know 
that uh, you know people have been doing this for a long time, and apparently we're the only ones who didn't know. We were, and the and the guys we were interviewing, we were all in you know complete and uh, utter denial. So, um, well, not denial, just uh, ignorance, I guess, right? Yeah. And you know, it takes a big guy to 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 say I am ignorant, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I know you're a big guy. Yeah, we're a couple of big guys. So anyway, here's just. <laughs> Here's just one of the emails that we got uh, on the road, and, and we, I, you know, I didn't want to. I don't know why we didn't read this. I guess we just didn't have a lot of time. We weren't really doing email. No, so, yeah, we weren't really reading it. Um, so here it goes. In your most recent episode, a developer you were talking to mentioned that Flash couldn't consume soap out of the box. Untrue. Flash Seven Plus, in other words, everything from Seven on, has a soap parser, the Web Service Connector class. It is used all over the place. The guy really didn't do his homework. It's people like this who spread all the misconceptions that surround the platform and make my life harder. <laughs> Editor's comment. All right, give the guy a break. Come on now. He didn't maybe Come he on. didn't have version 7. Come on. It happens, right? New features come out, we don't know. Yep. All right, so to continue this riveting email, Flash has even something better called remoting. It's a binary format based on SOAP, and man, is it fast. It talks with .NET natively, too, so all your server-side objects can have their client-side counterparts, and everyone plays nicely. Who knew? He also mentioned that ActionScript, or AS, striking a big resemblance to the word ass, but almost, <laughs> looks like JavaScript. That's untrue for ASS 1, but ASS 2, offered in the two latest versions of Flash, looks much closer to Java than JavaScript. Closer to Java than JavaScript. Interesting. Let's think about this for a minute. Yeah. Nope. AS3, or ASS 3, which is in public alpha, takes this even farther and is near complete a is a near-complete implementation of the ECMAScript 4 spec. And in addition, I wanted to point out an application framework that I've been building in ActionScript 2 called ActionStep, which he uh, gives us the URL to, actionstep.org. This is a fully-featured windowing toolkit, and it can do pretty close to anything you'd find in a Windows Forms environment. Richard, are you, are you feeling a little homesick right now? I mean, this is this sounding too good to be true. Yeah, it sure is. Oh, and no serious developer uses the MM Flash IDE anymore. It's built for the designers, not us. We are all using Eclipse and a plugin called FDT. It's a pleasure to code with, and I should insert, uh, you know, the gathering from these words. The tone of this email is basically neener, neener, neener. Yeah. Always love your show, Scott Hindman, Toronto, Canada. I should have figured he was a Canadian. <laughs> you Canadians have got it all figured out, man. You know exactly the latest stuff, you know. You know, we got all the information in America, but you got all the brains or We're something. We're paying attention, that's all. <laughs> What's up with that? Also, you know, we've had a lot of, uh, we continue to get a barrage of emails. How come you're not in iTunes? How come you're not in iTunes? And by the way, how come you're not in iTunes? And the, here's the deal. And I want to tell everybody, first of all, 
yes, we work with iTunes. It just takes uh, finding the right menu command to put, to paste our URL in there. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. But the story with iTunes goes like this, because you may not have been paying attention back then. When iTunes first supported podcasting, we were in there. We were in the list. Uh, they have a library online that you can search, which they compiled from all the podcast feeds all around the world somehow. Got a bunch of monkeys and a bunch of computers and set them in a room, and I guess they came up with this list. And we were on the list, both for .NET Rocks and Mondays. But we were using BitTorrent. These were RSS feeds to BitTorrent enclosures, and iTunes didn't support BitTorrent. So it basically was in iTunes. A lot of BitTorrent feeds were being downloaded, and then that was it, not completing. Uh, so then, you know, our complaint to uh, uh, iTunes or Apple was, well, why don't you guys support BitTorrent? Of course, they listened, uh, not. And are not supporting BitTorrent to this day. And we then uh, changed our feeds to support HTTP. But lo and behold, by that time, they had taken us out of the library. However, when I go to register the HTTP iPod you know, RSS file with iTunes, they say, you are already in our database. Basically telling me, Go f yourself is basically what they're saying. So, well, I mean, you're we're in the database, but we're in the database as don't show these guys. I guess. Yeah, as bad. We're flat. We've got the flag of death in the iTunes library. I don't. So I don't know how to fix this. Um, obviously, Apple Computer is in a company that you can just call up and have a chat with, and they'll say, oh, we'll fix that right away. I, I really get the feeling they could care less about managing their list. Um, that's not something that I'm sure they want to do. They've got the feature in there. It works for the most part. They're happy. So um, what you have to do is you have to go to the advanced menu and then select subscribe to podcast and a box pops up and you paste in the URL. Now on both of our .NET Rocks and Mondays pages, there are iTunes specific feeds for the iPod. Now you can just download the MP3 if you want. But we also uh, convert our files to an M4B format, which is the uh, bookmarkable MP3 format. So if you have an iPod, it's a really nice format to download, and you can get that via HTTP. Just pop it right in. So that's the story. Um, advanced, subscribe to podcast, pop in the URL to the RSS feed, which are listed on our websites. Knock yourselves out. So there you go. Richard, um, you, you've uh, mentioned before the show that the ICANN convention is happening in your part of the woods, is not? Yeah, here in Vancouver right now. So which, educate, which us, is, educate us as you are wont to do on, on ICANN and why we care. Well, if you use the internet, and let's face it, if you listen to the show, you use the internet, you care about ICANN. This is the company that was set up when the U.S. government spun the Internet out of being a government agency, it was the, uh, the Commerce Department, handed it off to this not-for-profit corporation called ICANN, right? ICANN standing for Internet Corporation yeah. for Assigned Names and Numbers. Right. They're responsible for the whole handling of IP addresses, handling of domain names, the root DNS servers, all those things come from ICANN. Mm -hmm. Now, they don't actually do them all. They have contracts with other companies to do these things. So, for example, 
you have Appnick, Lacknick, and all these different Nick groups that do the IP addresses. They've got contracts with ICANN. You've got VeriSign handling the .com uh, domain names, uh, the TLDs, and and so on. All of that comes from ICANN, and they're a they're not for profit volunteer type organization. They do have money. I mean, they make some money through the registrations, uh, but it's a it's an organization that impacts everything to do with the internet. And it's one of those things where people often don't pay attention to this. And the fact that it happens to be in my town right now means I had a chance to go down and sit on a few of the meetings. And you know, there's some pretty crazy people at these meetings. Yeah. Like yeah. the agendas being pushed there are, are significant and it doesn't have a lot to do with regular people just wanting this stuff to work. And that's what worries me is we ought to be paying a little more attention. So I've done some reading and, and thinking and looking at what's going on. I mean, one of the big topics is going on right now is this dispute between ICANN and VeriSign. I mean, VeriSign are the largest registry group out there. So in terms of people who are... In heavily involved in making things work, VeriSign's one of the big fish, and they're trying yeah. to do things right. I mean, they're a big company, and and they're easy to pick on. You know, they're very much the Microsoft of the internet space. Yeah, and uh, because they've got the .dot com licensing contract, and they've also now got the .dot net one as well. But there was this dispute going on forever that's just been settled, and the ICANN board approved the settlement between these two. And the settlement's quite reasonable. Well, what it makes a lot of sense what they're doing. It's very business like about how to arbitrate deals and how long it takes to bring new things forward and negotiations and stuff. It's very a coherent kind of thing, but apparently it upset some folks. And so this one of the big components of these meetings uh, here in town in Vancouver is about revisiting this already agreed to thing yeah. and uh, and reopening it. And I just hope that uh, folks can pay a little attention. You know, you may disagree with me, but go and voice your opinion online. ICANN.org, I-C-A-N-N.org, and let the ICANN board know whether you like it, whether you don't. I know I've been pitching in my bit saying, you know, this is a good agreement. It should go ahead. It's only going to make the product better. Yeah. And, you know, God forbid that uh, we, we were talking about, you were also talking about control of the uh, domain names, right? Well, one of the problems is that, you know, ICANN is a U.S. not-for-profit corporation. And I'm comfortable with that, but I'm a Canadian. Yeah, you know, we, and we, that's, that's pretty familiar. But there has been a movement in the EU saying this ought to be part of the UN, and and I'm not keen on that because generally speaking, when you want agile business, you don't involve multinationals. Yeah, exactly. Right. And what's made the internet work, you know, think about all the money that was spent through the dot com boom was the agility of and ICANN and and their organizations. Some of these uh, some of these countries um, who just simply hate America are trying to get control of the domain names so that they can filter things. Like I know China is and uh, and, and some of the Asian countries are, are trying to uh, grab control of the of the domain naming system so that they can, you know, filter things out. Isn't that true? Absolutely. And it, as part of the I think part of the problem is that there is a uh, other motivations. You know, every time I see documentation around this group and in these sorts of things, people making positions, you got to wonder, well, what's their motivation there? Right. And you're right. Some governments think that, well, if this stuff is going to be important, then we should control it. And it's actually quite exceptional to me that the United States chose to hand this over to the public domain. Yeah. You know, to not maintain control over it, but to, to let it go. Yeah. And I think it's the reason that we had the dot com boom. And 
for me, I'm frightened at the prospect that we would move away from that yeah. in any respect. I mean, we've gone up and down with the internet, but there's no doubt that the model that we're working with right now, which is a money-making model, it works. Mm -hmm. This is what brings the internet to where it is right now. And we're we're nowhere yet. I mean, we've got a billion people online. We've got five and a half billion to go. And that's a quote from yeah. Vincent Cerf. Right. And I, the only system I can see that can get us that other five and a half billion is the one we've got right now. So our old it friend... It could be run better. You know, there's no question it could be run better. Yeah. But starting over makes no sense to me. Our, our old friend Jonathan Zuck must be up there. Have you... You know, because I know yeah, that he I've plays... Yeah, I, I saw uh, John Zuck uh, last night. And yeah, he's slugging away. You know, there's a guy, uh, a former regional director and a believer in in the process and getting people involved and making your voice heard. And uh, yeah, I he's believe, right in the middle of all. I of believe it. I interviewed him on the ninth show or something like that. He was or fifth, maybe even the fifth show. He was really uh, um, an early person. We want to have him back because, you know, he's he's basically taught in Washington, D.C., educating lawmakers and uh you know, people who don't have any clue about technology, he's educating them so that they can actually get up in front of a, a group of people and understand what a cookie is, you know. For sure. But even beyond that, you know, I think one of the things that John Brady brings forward is this idea that we need a little bit of activism in the technology world, too. We do. Yeah. There's something about us that we, we don't want anything to do with any of this stuff. You know, policy is ugly and we don't want to deal with any of this. Let us just build our, our gizmos and be happy. And he's the first guy to step up and say, if you don't make your voice heard on what you want, if you don't contend with these issues around policy, you don't get the new toys. Yeah. You know, this stuff gets encumbered. It's part and parcel with the job. And so while I know that, you know, his original mission was to help educate lawmakers about technology, I think he's also bringing law to the technology folks and saying, you've yeah. got to make uh, get involved in this as well. And that's uh, really where the whole ICANN thing comes up is. You know, here's the core of the Internet, the most important part about way the way the Internet's going to work. And most people don't know. Right. These things are under threat. Yeah. That there are, there's decisions being made that are directly going to impact your ability to use the Internet. Don't presume sanity. Yeah, exactly. Don't presume <laughs> that people all know what they're doing. You know, because the folks that get focused on this stuff often are a long way away from the thinking that you and I might have. All right. So all I'm asking is for a little bit of attention. So this Take is good. Take a look. Look at the site. Make your opinions known. And if it really upsets you, like it has to me, well, all I had to do was drive downtown and sit in on a few meetings and uh, and bang some desks. And it's a, it's a call to action here at Don Rocks, folks. Uh, you know, get involved. And speaking of getting involved, we, uh, you know, along just about launch time, we had been hearing some mumblings on the internet from people like uh, Roy Osharov and some other people who were uh, basically blogging that, you know, VS 2005 is, is low quality. And uh, we wanted to not just, you know, get out there and wave the flag for Microsoft and say, no, no, it's great, it's great, it's great, you people are crazy. Uh, we you know, we want to do the right thing, which is to serve our listeners and give yeah. them the right information. Which means also we don't want to slam the product either. No, we don't want to, but we're interested in the truth. So what we, what we decided to do, and I, I posted a blog, uh, I, I did a blog post about this at shrinkster.com slash 9L0. And if you go to 9L0, that's a, a, a basically a call for listeners to send us 
your experiences with the release version of Visual Studio 2005. And uh, whether good or bad, tell us what you've done. And there are a few rules we want you to follow. First, you must not be running in a virtual PC. You must not be running on a machine on which a beta was installed and removed. Clean builds only, and that includes um, the Express products all the way up through you know, SQL Server, 2005 products, and uh, Visual Studio. You must be running XP Pro with all the latest critical updates installed prior to installing Visual Studio 2005. And don't be using any third-party tools like Code Rush, ReSharper, Dundas, or anything that doesn't come in the box. Not saying anything about those products, just saying, let's get some people out there who have a clean installation, see if they can reproduce some bugs or some crashes, and it will at least weed out the, you know, the, the expectable problems, i.e. people who are running over beta uh, stuff. And that's another issue, you know. If you have beta stuff installed, yes, they were supposed to, you know, Microsoft was supposed to clean it up, but those go-live licenses that people have been citing, those are for the runtime only, not the IDE. And they've been, Microsoft has been very adamant about saying, you know, when you use beta software for the IDE, it's risky. And, you know, they don't guarantee anything. So uh, the goal here is to distill it down, to not have some unreproducible results, find some real problems and be sure we've got some real issues here. And then let's take them to Microsoft and exactly. say, what about these? So then we're, you know, we're, uh, we're going to try to get Soma on uh, maybe after a couple of weeks of people sending in their stories. And don't just go to the blog site and blog them. We want you to email them to us at .net rocks at Franklin's net. And then we'll, uh, we'll have some fun. We'll, we'll see what's really going on here. And that's, of course, what we want to you know, give the listeners is the truth. So I know it was a big intro. And Deb uh, Karada is waiting patiently on the phone here while we rant. But uh, thank you, Deb, for waiting. I'm going to introduce her now. Deborah Karada, an old friend of ours, is co-founder of InStep Technologies, a professional consulting firm that focuses on turning your business vision into reality using Microsoft.net technologies. She has over 15 years of experience in architecting, designing, and developing successful applications. Deborah has authored several books, including the Doing Objects in Visual Basic series from SAMS, Best Kept Secrets in .NET from A-Press, and Doing Web Development, Client Side Techniques from A-Press. And she's currently working on Doing Objects in VB 2005 with Addison Wesley. She also writes for MSDN and Code Magazine, code-magazine.com. Deborah speaks at .NET user groups all over the country as a member of the INETA Speakers Bureau and at conferences such as VS Live, Dev Days, and TechEd. For her work in support of software development and software developers, she has been recognized with the Microsoft Most Valuable Professional Award, the MVP Award. And after a hard day of coding and taking care of her family, Deborah enjoys blowing stuff up on the Xbox, of course. Hi, Deb. How are you? Good. How are you? Just fine. You were an Xbox junkie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> you just don't seem to tell you so mild and meek. I can't, I can't picture you with a big gun, you know, guns ablaze and kicking some ass in Halo. I just can't picture it. Oh, that's how I can stay mild and meek. <laughs> <laughs> Deb, you've got like some of the original books for Visual Basic. I remember reading your stuff. God, ages yep. ago. BB How long has it been? VB4. VB4. Yep. 
That's when VB first got out. Visual Basic four, even when nobody had VB four. <laughs> Wasn't that a Ziff press book too? Um, it was originally Ziff Davis when I did the VB four version, and they were bought by Sam's and blah blah blah. And as all the usual things, and that's like ten years ago now. Oh, oh man. God. I feel all, don't do that, man. And we were all there. All three of us were there. <laughs> Deb, but you know, before you had done uh, these books in VB4, and before you had seen VB4, you had done some traditional, I mean, I guess, object-oriented programming as traditional it was. I mean, it had only been around for a few years anyway, but um, what's your background in OOP? Um, well, I did some work in C++, but I have to tell you, it was so long ago that there was no Microsoft C++ at that time. Wow. Not that I'm old or anything. I, I started very young. I started coding when I was eight. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> you should have said, uh, here's the joke. I started coding at eight. Well, maybe it was 8.30, but you know. <laughs> <clears throat> but I um, did Zortex C++, if anybody's ever heard of that, and... Um, I started consulting, and my first consulting gig actually was with Alan Cooper. Yeah. Um, talk wow. about talk about a great person to start, you know, really? your career with. And um, he suggested instead of using C plus plus for the first draft of the application, we would start our prototype in this little tool that he had been kind of playing around with. And uh, by the time I got it, it actually was VB two. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember finding the news groups, which were um, all on CompuServe at that time. And yeah. I think that might have been um, where I met you, Carl. Probably. News yeah. groups. Anyway, I remember one of the first questions I posted that was driving me absolutely insane was how to instance my class module. I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to instance my class modules in order to create multiple instances of my stuff. And... Um, Someone broke it to me that with VB2, you couldn't yeah. and introduced me to UDTs. Yeah. All value types. Yep. Oh, man. Now, now I'm getting the shakes. <laughs> <laughs> you know I was that old, did you? <sighs> I'm just having flashbacks now. <laughs> and Richard, that could be dangerous for you. You better lie down. I mean, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, we forget how hard we worked to try and do this stuff. I do, then. yeah. I used to use bass modules as objects of a sort with global variables, which was ho- totally horrible. But it was the only was way doing, I could do it. I did arrays of UDTs and treated each array entry as a quote-unquote object, yeah. which was the best I could do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was contracting C++ developers to build me VBXs for some of the things we were trying to do. That was our workaround. Well, let's talk about something a little more current. Uh, at the <laughs> yeah. time, you know, VB4 came out, there was no real inheritance, and obviously this was something that you were probably looking forward to. No? Yes. Yeah. Loved being able to create um, base classes. It's been fabulous, and the amount of code that it saves is just amazing. I'm converting a VB6 project right now or helping a company do it, and to look at every single form had this exact same huge set of code in it to now just be able to put it in a base form class and right. um, reference that, it saves a tremendous amount of code and that was in every single form before. Yeah. And so this obviously .NET 1.0, I imagine, must have been like, well, finally, right. you know, a big sigh. The biggest thing, though, was trying to figure out 
where it all made sense. <clears throat> because .NET was so different um, architecturally from VB6, the question was, you know, where does it really make sense to have a base form class versus a component? Sure. Um, should your things be stateless? Should they be stateful? There were just so many questions uh, that came up during that period, which is why I actually didn't do a doing objects in .NET book when it first came out, because I hadn't myself decided which way I wanted to go with all of those things. It took quite a few projects before I figured out what made sense, or at least made sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and how are you faring with this new version of uh, of VB? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I was able to spend more time very early on, which was really nice because you get more of the general thinking of, of where Microsoft is going with it, which helps a lot put it into perspective. Um, and I also got very early on an actual billable project with it, which makes you actually, you know, really make it all work in right. something more real than a, a sample app for a talk or a magazine article, right. and that has been probably the most helpful for me to really make myself think through, you know, not just can I get my controls on my form all bound, but can I make the whole process work and the deleting and and canceling and all of the, you know, error icons and everything all work together in a very cohesive manner. Well, and also seeing how that's all going to behave in front of the user. Right. You know, that, that remarkable things about how our sample apps tolerate our use and our demonstration. And when you put them in front of the regular mortals, they smash them to bits. That's right. How, how does it, you know, this is a question that um, I, I don't know if I've asked a lot of people, but I, it certainly has occurred to me from time to time. Just, to, you know, with all the new stuff that came, you know, when .NET 1.0 came out and then .NET 1.1 was just a little bit of a fix on that. Um with this new version, there's so many new things that, you know, the, the old feeling stupid thing is happening again, you know? You feel really like uh, you've got so much stuff to learn. It's a bit overwhelming. Right. Well, I had done um, basic ages ago on the Vax, Vax Basic. Yeah. Um, Woohoo! And so when I first started with VB2, I could guess based on the Vax Basic I had done years ago previously and guess things and I was generally right. Yeah. And going from VB six to one point oh and one point one, I found I couldn't guess anything right. You know, what yeah. what um component uh class would this particular thing be in or you know, I couldn't even find debug. You know, where was debug? It wasn't where I thought it would be and it just took me a while to get to the point where I could guess. Yeah. And I found out that now I finally feel like I'm at that point. And so as I'm moving to 2.0, I'm, I'm feeling like I can guess a lot of times and guess relatively close, yeah. whereas I couldn't do that between VB6 and 1.0. What do you think? Does that, that makes sense? Yeah, no, sure, yeah. Do you think the, that, it, I don't know how you would know this, but if you could guess, do you think it's going to be easier for most VB6 folks to move to 2005 rather than... Uh, 1.1? Um, I know Microsoft would love to hear me say yes, but I don't think so. Hmm. Um, I think that there's still, I mean, they added pre-instance classes. Well, I don't know how much that's really going to help in the yeah. bottom line of things because people are still going to have to go through that process where they're not going to know 
how to find anything or how sure. to do anything. And a lot of the VB6 people that I'm moving with, moving over, um, just don't know what else they could be doing. And they're able to do, you know, the basics, but then the same way that they were doing them in VB6. So there's just so much more, um, many more options. And with 2.0, there's even more options. Yeah. So to try to um, start a VB6 person off with 2.0, where they have so many other new things like the object binding, um, that yeah. it makes for a lot of a lot of um, things they need to be thinking about. Yeah, I want to talk about object binding in a minute, but but you, as Richard and I were out on this road trip, um, I as you know I did, was doing these demos over and over again. I was doing these "What's New in VB 2005" demo uh, demos, and the thing that struck me is that a lot of the features that they've added, you know, to sort of warm up to the to cozy up to the VB6 programmers, I really think it, they're they're looking to just get them to stick with it for a little bit longer. You know, they're raising the comfort level of that first experience, you know, with the IDE, so that the things that they're familiar with, like form2.show and, you know, or default instances and, and uh, edit and continue and taking all the code out with partial classes of the forms and things like that, are, are sort of just to, I, I sort of think that they're really just trying to get people to have a good experience for a half hour or so, and then have a good enough experience to want to come back and learn more. I, I sort of think that that's where they lost a lot of VB6 developers with the last two versions, is just to just to open it up and get something stupid to run just took a little bit more learning curve than, uh, than they thought it would. What do you right, think about that? but a lot of VB6 programmers that I'm working with anyway aren't starting there. They're starting by taking their existing code and moving it over. Oh, and that's horrible. That's it horrible because you really have hard. to know everything all and, at once. Um, I've been, as I think I mentioned earlier, that I've been working on, on helping this company um, work on their VB6 app, but the really hard part about it is the app is so big and they're a, a company who does products, so they can't just wait until it's all done before they send out the next version of their products. So they're doing it in phases. So we have a tremendous amount of interop we have to do. Yeah. There are a huge number of little gotchas all over that you can end up spending a whole lot of time on. And I'm, I'm disappointed that there isn't more um, background information on that. I know Patterns and Practices just put out something, but it doesn't really talk to you about where you could have trouble like we needed to drag between a VB6 created control um, on a .NET form um, over to a .NET grid, and you know how do you get that to work? Well, after some research, we figured it out, but it would have been nice to have had somewhere um, to go. And we're trying to call methods back and forth, and parameters don't work. Parameters in .NET and parameters in VB6 mm. aren't the same thing. Mm. So if you try to use a parameter. Um, in .NET, calling from VB6, it doesn't work. And at least I have not found hardly anywhere that it tells you that. There really doesn't seem to be a lot of cycles being put into dealing with migration these days. Yes. Um, if I had nothing to do right now, I would actually sit down and write a whole, um, everything I ran into while I was migrating, um, <laughs> book of yeah. some kind. But with working on doing objects, I don't have free time to do that right now. Would you suggest well, the problem with migration is that eventually it does end? 
You know, there's a whole bunch of people out there doing .NET now, not doing anything else. Do you, you know, one of the things that I hear over and over again is don't make a migration your first experience with .NET. But, yeah. you know, in many cases, that's, like you said, that's what they have to do. Right. But uh, are there shops out there such as yours who, who specialize in doing migrations? So is that a good, is that a good idea for people who uh, are jumping into it? And, you know, here's the, here's the red light for the managers out there. Don't take a person who's new to .NET and say, okay, migrate our, our VB6 code to learn it. Yeah, right? not unless they just want something that will compile because the tools sort of help you get that far. But right. um, I don't know that we specialize in that area, but we've done quite a bit of it recently. Yeah. So we know a lot of where the gotchas are. Yeah. Oh, well, I would, I would definitely recommend it because, as you say, you know, that that's the worst. It's the worst possible scenario because you you get these errors in code that you don't understand, and you're you're forced to, you know, you're forced to learn it from the top down. It's nothing but discouraging, and you can never know it all that you need to know. You need to know everything all at once. Right. Yeah. Folks, do yourself a favor and check out our friends Data Dynamics website, datadynamics.com, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for uh, Windows Forms and ASP.NET. Very nice stuff. You compile the uh, the reports right into your application, ship them with your assemblies. Uh, has all the great features you come to expect in a reporting engine, and you can use uh, ActiveX controls right in the reports too. So, great stuff. Uh, Data Dynamics has been an excellent sponsor of .NET Rocks uh, for a long time. They, uh, you know, they deserve a little bit of uh, your love and attention. So, go check them out at www.datadynamics.com. So, um, so how have your experiences? I mean, we caught up with you at the launch in San Francisco in the in the the chip line. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Love those chips. Yeah. You said you had some issues with uh, Visual Studio. I I heard you mention that before, and I think I would have to cut myself out of that category yet because I'm still running from my VPC. Okay. Um. So, I don't I don't know that. Yeah. Any issues I would be having would count because um, I've had, you know, yeah, uh, quite a few crashing kinds of things. But I think a huge amount of it is because of the way that I'm running it. And also, I'm still running um, a beta version. Yeah. I'm waiting for my team system CDs to show up or DVDs to show up, whatever the heck they're on. Yeah. I think a lot of us are in that position, actually. I think a lot of, a lot of people who would care about the quality of the end result, you know, have been, 
you know, uh, using the betas a lot. And therefore, there aren't a lot of people who are just running them on clean machines. But, you know, I have heard, you know, I've heard bugs, uh, bug reports of people who are running on clean machines. But that, you know, we're not, there are bugs in 2003 and in, you know, 2002 as well. Yeah. yeah, someday we might have the whole concept of bug-free software, but not today. Not today. And it's getting more and more complicated how Microsoft could possibly test every single possible scenario is is just seems overwhelming to me. Well, and they apparently did. I mean, they they had more test cases in this uh in this last build, you know, this last version of .NET Visual Studio than than they ever had before. Something like a half a million test cases. Wow. Ridiculous number of test cases. So, yeah, I'm re- that still doesn't cover every possible thing somebody could want to do with us. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, we've got a VB6 control sitting on a .NET form running within Word. Now, tell me that's one of their test cases. Yeah, probably <laughs> not. <laughs> so, Deb, let's talk about object binding. I know this is something you feel really strongly about and you, and you really love. Uh, Tell us what it is and, and why we should be paying attention to it. Well, object binding is something that um, was available in uh, 1.1, but I didn't use it. Most people didn't use it. It wasn't really fabulous. But in 2.0, it is really, really nice. Um, the idea of object binding is that you build your business object and then you allow the development environment, the Visual Studio IDE, to actually bind those um, parts of your business object directly to your user interface so that you don't have to write all the code that says textbox1.txt equals you know, customer.lastname, textbox2.txt equals customer.firstname. So you don't have to write all that code, and it handles um, putting the data in all of the controls and um, saving all of that data, or not necessarily saving it, but putting it back into the properties all automatically. And it is really, really nice. So, now, to what, um, to what extent, Deb, have we been able to do this in .NET previous to this version? They had some um, binding that allowed you to bind a um, business object in some very limited cases. I played around with it, I don't know, three or four years ago and immediately just kind of ignored it. And so I couldn't even tell you exactly what I could yeah. it can do anymore. Well, I know Rocky's got, in his CSLA.net framework, he's got a bindable base and a bindable collection base that, uh, that you can use as bindable objects. In 1.1? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he had to write them, you know, so it's not like it's built in as it is in .NET 2.0. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, excuse me. I um, I'm just getting over a cold, so I still have some um, <laughs> some leftover hangings on of that. But one of the um, other things that I really like about um, object binding in 2.0 is the whole UI design experience. Um, I can just type my properties into my business objects, make sure my business object compiles, and then when I go to my um, user interface, all of the properties are sitting there nice and neatly in the um, data sources um, window, and I can just drag them onto a form, and it creates my form for me, um, and it allows me to control how it all works, 
it actually does the binding then to my code as opposed to data set binding that binds to its own generated hundreds and thousands of lines of generated code. Yeah. And um, then for maintenance, one of the things that I think a lot about is when I'm done coding something, I usually need to give it to somebody else. Right. And they need to be able to maintain it, and they need to be able to find where they need to put in edits. They need to be able to easily understand where they have to go and how to make them work. And when you want to add a field for object binding, you just go to your business object, add a property, Again, make sure that your um, business object compiles and bang, the property is there waiting for you. You don't have to regenerate anything or anything. And then mm. you can just drag it on and add it to your form, and it's, it's fabulous. So how is the object implemented? Is it just any regular class that can work? Do you use attributes? Is there a base class? Um, you don't have to do anything. Really? You just create a class, make sure it has some public properties. And then when you go to the um, data sources window, you just create a data source and tell it you want it to be a data source. So you don't have to inherit from any particular base nope. class because that's, that's a really, really cool feature in my mind. You know, limiting yourself to a, to a particular base class that, you know, you only get one. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I do somewhat like what Rocky does, and I have a business base, a BO base, that um, is the base for all of my business objects yeah. and implements some of the other... Um, interfaces, because there are some additional interfaces available on object binding to do some of the things, um, like, for example, if you want the error provider icon to automatically work, oh, you cool. can implement the iData error info. Um, and nice. again, I put that in my um, base business object class so that all the other ones don't um, need to know to do that. Uh, and then that makes it really easy, again, to uh, get any business object that's later added that will just automatically work. There are a couple of things that are left to fix, though, in object binding, and I think it would be good to maybe point those out as well. Sure. Yeah, that was my next question. What, uh... <laughs> okay. Um, first of all, binding to radio buttons. Since it huh. isn't a one-to-one -one thing. Oh, right, right, sure. Since... Right, because you have a bunch of controls, and then they each relate to one possible value of a given field. Mm. Right. So what they really need to do, in my opinion, is to have for Windows like they have for the web where they've got that radio button list control or whatever they call yep. that thing yep. um, that allows you to define a group of radio buttons as one control. And I, lot of, I know a lot of people are getting around that by creating their own control. That's basically that. But it would be nice if it came in the box. Um, one of the other things that I was having some problems with is um, I wanted a grid, a flat grid, to show my list of invoices. And I wanted it to have, you know, like the invoice name, the invoice total, and the customer name and their phone number. So I could, you know, very easily, or the users could very easily see, you know, oh, this invoice is laid and call them or whatever. And with object binding, if the invoice has a reference to customer, customer won't show up on the list for the binding. So huh? I couldn't see, like, customer name in the same grid as my invoice information without then also adding a customer property to my invoice class. Can you say that again? Hmm. I'm not sure I followed you. <clears throat> okay. Um, let's do the simple case of I want a grid with just my invoice stuff on it. Okay. So what I would do is create a business object with the basic invoice stuff that I want, um, invoice number, uh, 
invoice description, total, whatever fields that I would want. Okay. And then I would also create um, a collection class of these things, implementing that um, I-binding list of T mm-hmm. uh, in order to ensure that the list behaved as a bindable list. Yeah. And then I could bind that to the grid, and it all would just work very nicely. But now I actually want the customer name on there. Oh, right. So my invoice has a reference already to the customer for which it's invoiced. Sure. I can't get it in that same grid using the automatic data binding features. Because if I try to put it on there, it's going to want to create it as a um, hierarchical structure. Thinks it's below, not above, in other words. Yeah, or in line with. In line with, And so in order to get that to work, I actually had to add a customer name property to my invoice, which kind of breaks the OO a little bit. Yeah, sure, sure. And then it just simply then referenced the um, uh, customer object's last name, so it didn't re-implement it. It just had to reference it. But in order to flatten it out, I did have to have it on there, so then the grid would show up with the name. You know... This kind of stuff, so it's hard to... Talk yeah. about without pictures or code. No, no, I understand. This is the kind of stuff that uh, I believe Ted Neward was talking about when he was sort of ragging on object relational mapping in general. You know, mapping objects into databases, mapping objects into UI. And sometimes they just don't go. You know, they don't quite fit. And right. uh, there's Yeah, it's one of those technologies that demos well, but when you actually put it out in the field, you find these whammies that are very hard to work around. Yeah. Exactly. And... um one of the things that I'm hoping for the next release of, of Visual Studio is that they will go back and instead of giving us big new features, they'll go back and revisit some of these little irritating missing things. And if um, I have time, I have two more. Okay. No, go for it. Okay. Um, the next one is that the iData error info that I was mentioning previously, the one that would automatically put your error icons up, it is very, very cool, and it works very nicely, except that it eats all of your exceptions. Hmm. <laughs> so if you have any exception occurring in your business object code, it will pick it up. Huh. And it won't actually error in your application. So when you're debugging... So it won't propagate it. I don't, I don't mind it bub- picking it up, but propagate it out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it actually eats it, so it won't do anything. Yeah, that's actually, bad. if... <laughs> If it happens just correctly, you can actually see the error icon show up in the UI, hover over it, and actually get your untrapped error text right there as part of your error icon. So, you know, object or with block variable not set or whatever your error message is will show up right in your error icon because it's catching it and and trying to handle it for you. Um, And so that's just a little bit funky. I'm not exactly sure how they would fix that. Um, Mm. And you can make it easier to debug it by changing the way that the um, errors, you know, the break on errors thing. Right. That, but um, hopefully they'll make that just a little bit easier to deal with. Yeah. Um, and the last one is um, that the data in a control is not saved to the properties. So if you type in something into the text box, it doesn't actually go, um, like for the last name, the last name text box doesn't get reassigned to the last name property until the actual validate event occurs, which is when you leave the field. Right. You have to you maybe have to do have, a, um, an end current edit or something on the binding. Validation part. working or whatever. Um, well, that doesn't work for the toolbar. Huh. 
So if you have your save up on your toolbar, it will never save the last field that you're in unless you code around it. Do you have to, um, on the binding manager, do an end current edit in order well, to I commit that? What I was doing was a me.validate, and that works too. Huh. So if you just do on the save, the very first thing I do on the save is me.validate, which will cause the current control to get validated. Yeah. And that then makes it, makes it go. Okay. And I thought that was easier to think about than the end edit thing. Yeah, that's, it's better too. It's cleaner. Yeah. It's explicit. You know what's supposed to happen now. I said, interesting foible with the toolbar. It's got to be something about its relationship to the rest of the form. That's what I was thinking, too, because it doesn't have that um, uh, property that tells it to, to process the validation. Yeah. Interesting. Just a bug or, or just an oversight? It's, a, it's a interesting. Why is it like that for that control? And you know toolbars are different. I mean, they've got some characteristics to them that are unusual. Yeah, yeah, you could I, say that. I think that they might not really know about the rest of the form, possibly. I don't know. They seem, as you said, a little different. But it's um, but the causes validation option isn't there. And I think that Microsoft needs to, to think about how they could possibly make it there. I'm hoping it was just an oversight and it would be real easy to put it in. <laughs> yeah, that would be my hope, too. It's just an oversight. Missed it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you exactly. know, I don't know. They they've they've sort of left some of those things to for you to do on purpose, I think, because if they went ahead and did them, then you'd always have the behavior. But at least, you know, they could put some booleans in there. You know, do this, do that, you know, here's here's the behavior we want. Yeah, raise it or not raise it. Right. Yeah, that's why they had the causes validation thing on absolutely everything else. So you could have something like a cancel button that didn't cause the validation and get an error when you're canceling. And it would be nice if each of the toolbar buttons had its own causes validation um, property on it so that you could have a cancel button or a close button or whatever you'd want that wouldn't um, necessarily cause it to all validate. Yeah. Debbie, you uh, are taking advantage of partial classes at all? What do you think of this? Um, well, when I first saw them, I was afraid that people might try to actually leverage them as a uh, programming technique. Yeah. And um, <laughs> Goodness knows we wouldn't want them to use them. Oh, no. Not, not as a regular, no, you I know, agree with her. Yeah. You don't, they're, they had, they're there for a purpose. Right. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it makes sense to use something. Like, I don't know if you remember, but I keep kind of getting historical here, but when VB4 was first created, the only reason that VB had the ability to create objects was to talk to Olay Automation. Right. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yep. And it was its only purpose in life, and then we, as a group of VB developers, sort of made it, you know, be more object-oriented programming or allowed us to use those features. And there are a lot of features like that that you can take and expand, and I'm hoping partial classes is not one of those. <laughs> right. Well, you know that... I hope people just know that it's more for generated code, so you don't mix it with your good code, and they don't think about, okay, I'm going to put all of John's method in one place and Patty's methods in the other one right. so that we can... Because that's just yuck. That's horrible. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that was exactly the kind of scenario I was going to describe. Generated code, it makes sense... Three people working on a class, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Exactly. That's my opinion as well. 
Yeah, I agree. And uh, you know, obviously they're they're used in. Uh, this was funny. I, I was showing this in England uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, partial classes. Some guy in the audience goes, "Can you turn it off?" And I said, "Excuse me, you know, when you generate a form, can you not use partial classes?" I said, "No." He goes, "Bugger." <laughs> <laughs> Well, the other problem that I've been running into with partial classes is that after the fact, you want to change um, how the uh, what the form's base class is. You have to know right. You have to go look find. in the partial class because if you just add it to the class that you have, you know, if you don't know the partial class is there or whatever, you can really hose yourself and start getting some very me- you know odd messages that you might not immediately know what. They're trying to tell you. Well, it also, you know, raises it, it presents the situation that when you don't see code that's in the object and it's not in the source code, now you're wondering whether it's broken somewhere or there's a partial class lurking out there you don't know about. Yeah. yeah. You know? It's that uncertainty that's the problem. Yeah. Which is why I don't like type data sets. Hey, I was just going to... All of that code that it generated. I was just going to ask you, you know, as long as we're griping here... You know, (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about type data sets. Not a fan. Never been a fan. And I know that there are some people that just find that appalling because they absolutely love them and won't do anything but them. But I mean, I just today, just for grins, because I wanted to have a number. I had a stored procedure with only 18 fields, which I think is a relatively small number for a real application. And I created the data source for it in 2002, and it generated 1,284 lines of code. Wow. Does that not just amaze you? Yeah. And I don't know why it bothers me. I guess maybe I'm controlling, and I don't like the fact that I didn't have control over all of that code, um, which is why I always want the top screen in Halo. But um, (laughs) but anyway. um, Well, you say control. I'm... There are code generators out there where you do have control, but you still don't like those, right? I, I figure if there's anything where the code is that common that it would know how to produce it, then why don't you have a common code component that does it with one set of code? Well, because often it's just a matter of the data that's changed from class to class, right? The properties, the, the fields. Well, I have used snippets and i guess if you kind of push that a little bit aren't snippets just little mini code generators yeah they are sure but there are some out there that are truly kind of a line there but i think the difference is that i control the code and i know what that code is there are some out there deb that are truly beautiful like uh, declare it and codesmith have you seen these tools i have not no yeah you ought to take a look at them some and good stuff. You would like the code that they generated? Well, you write the code they generate. That's the cool thing. Oh, okay. Well, you, that might be something different then. Yeah, you write the templates. You can even, in CodeSmith, you can even lop off uh, segments of code that you say, protect this code in the template. Don't write over it, you know. Right. Um, so, there, yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of cool stuff happening out there. Yeah. But, but in terms of type data sets, the other thing that I don't like is the fact that in almost every single application I have ever worked on, the database is not pre-set in stone. Right. Yeah. Frequently, uh, you know, I, uh, every couple of weeks you need to add a field somewhere, and I hate the idea of having to go back and regenerate right. 
free data source that, um, you know, uses that field every time, whereas in my business object, I just simply add it and it shows up and, and life is, is good. As a database developer, I have a, a, a sign hanging over my computer screen, WWKD, what would Kim do? It's basically. <laughs> yeah. What does she think of, of the uh, data set binding, type data sets? Do you know? Kim's comment, if you were to, I guarantee you, if you were to ask her that question, her answer would say, be, I don't do .NET. Yeah, I don't do code. Oh. <laughs> That's yeah. not my problem. Not, not her problem. <laughs> She, she's defined an area of expertise, and she's not straying. I don't particularly think she would be interested in a store procedure generator, however. Well, and they exist. Well, I know, you know yeah. They're writing SQL, too. Yeah, and they have their, their issues as well. You know, the thing, I can relate to the idea that I hate the whole regeneration process because you can't get away from that fear that maybe it won't regenerate right. Maybe yeah. it breaks something, and it's a one-way trip. Once you've done it, you've done it. I now, don't how know. How do you undo it? I don't know. You generate it, you use it, it doesn't work, you tweak the template, you regenerate it. I mean, I don't know if that's so if that's so true. But anyway. right up until it doesn't work. <laughs> well, yes, when it doesn't exactly. work, you and fix that's it. That's kind of what I've run into a couple times that something happens. You know, I rename something. That's always the worst thing. Well, at you least know, it you rename something yeah. and you're host. At least you it doesn't happen at runtime. It's never gonna work again. <laughs> <laughs> at least it's not a runtime surprise, right? Yeah, that's true. Like variants or objects, you know, late binding stuff. Yeah. It's just that dread of all I had to do is add this column and now now I lose three days. Yeah. While yeah. I untangle whatever went wrong. Yep. That's I'm feeling very alone here tonight. I don't know. Maybe. Guys in the chat room, are you with me? <laughs> when Deb said she didn't like code generation, she'd rather build it herself and put it in a class like spoken like a real oop person. Right, yeah. right, you know, right. It's True. my code. I'm going to inherit from it. Leave me alone. Right, right. Sure. So, Carl, why do you like type data sets? Oh, I don't necessarily. I mean, I, I don't like them for the same reason you don't. But um, the reason, you know, the reason that you would use them, I think, is when you have this a schema that isn't going to change. Here's Here's the situation, right? RSS, RSS is uh, a great a great tool for aggregating data from blogs and from everything else, right? It was it's very easy to use type data sets with RSS, and here's how: you download into an RSS reader an RSS file, you read that into a data set, it infers the schema, you write that schema out to an XSD file. You pull that XSD file up in your project. You generate a data set from it. And now you can, you know, that's a schema that isn't going to change. You know what I mean? Yep. That's not a database that you're messing around with. That's a schema that's well known. And you and could so from, think from, of that as being your business object. That is your business object. That's your, that holds your data. So, right. you know, in the XML world where schemas are set in stone, it makes a lot of sense. In the database world, you know, that's, for the same reasons that you're saying, I'm I don't use them all that much, because I'm the kind of guy who, when I'm developing an application, at least for me around here, the apps that I write, you know, I'm doing the database and the code at the same time. You know, exactly, exactly. Oh, I need another field. Oops. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> oh, so I need yeah. Table. And and in my classes, Deb, um, you'll be happy about this. I started out in the early days using type data sets, and I found people just got too confused. 
They just yeah. weren't ready for that. So we stuck to, I went back to plain vanilla data sets and, uh, and it, everybody was happy about that. We learned a lot. They learned a lot more too. They retained it better because there was no magic thing working for them that they didn't understand. And I find that's really true with type data sets. It's just a layer of magic that people just don't get what it is and why they need it. That's funny because I, I wrote down the list of four reasons why I don't like data sets and the word magic, it was number four. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I had been struggling for the longest time um, about the book, the Doing Objects book, whether I should show both, whether I should show, you know, do everything all with the object binding and then show it all again with type data set and data set binding. And after playing around with it a while, I thought, okay, I'm going to just take the slamming and I'm going to just do object binding because I don't really stand behind the data set binding. Plus I think so much else covers it. I was just thinking of adding a couple of references to other people's things there. Yeah. So if you really like data set type data sets, you know, check out this work. And <laughs> That's a good idea. I, I agree. I, I, it's a general principle of mine not to, uh, not to talk about or teach stuff that I really don't feel strongly about. Yeah, you know, I 100% concur with that. Yeah. But I, I was going to give them a try, and after just kind of playing around with them, I've been, you know, I don't want to paste 1,284 lines of code in my book. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. And you can, so, as you can see in line 1,504. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Trying to go through and explain what all that code does. I mean, I was looking through it going, huh, what is that? Yeah. Anyway. That's the nature of generic code, too, right? It's very obscure. Yeah, yeah. So when, what's your ETA for this book? Um, I'm thinking that because of a long process it takes to actually get it all published these days, that it's probably going to be spring, okay. April, May, maybe. Because uh-huh. it takes a really long time to get it from my computer out to actually a bookstore shelf for some reason. I don't know why. Um, no, I'm just kidding, but it does take a while. And so I'm thinking that that it will be April, May before it actually is out there. Okay. So, but it, it, it will have object binding, everything you want to know about object binding, but we're afraid to ask. Very cool. Um, more recent or more current though, I'm doing a, um, article for code magazine, Mm -hmm. um, right now that's due this month. So when would that be coming out? January or February? Right. So. If you can't wait and you want more uh, information about object binding, um, that will be coming out significantly sooner than the book. Cool. And, uh, you know, here's just a couple of uh, interest questions that I'm interested in. You you have a consulting company, InStep Tech, and uh, what are some of the cooler jobs that you can talk about that you've uh, been working on lately? Um, well, we wrote the um, starter kit for VB, for um, uh, eBay. Oh, cool. So on the eBay website, oh, you if you're interested this. in hooking yeah. the eBay SDK into your application, we did a VB starter kit, and you can download it from the eBay developer's um, website, and that was really fun. So we got to do all sorts of fun things with eBay. Um, I, I had never that. done much office integration, and so this application that we're working on from VB6 um, to .NET has a lot of office integration, and that's been exceptionally interesting. Deb, let me ask you: with the eBay SDK, can you like can you write a bot to sit there and look for prices on things and and 
you know, at the last minute throwing in an order and get the get the thing? I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> I I would think so. Our sample app was much more business oriented. Right. So it assumed that you run a um a shop that sells VCRs, new okay. presumably. And <laughs> just kidding. Um <laughs> So you would have your own inventory, and so it shows that how you how to hook up your inventory database to this thing and put your items um, from your inventory up and to track them and all of that kind of stuff and to receive feedback because eBay is very much um, feedback-oriented. You know, if your feedback numbers get too low, they won't let you um, or that people won't want to buy stuff from you anymore. And So it does. it's much more focused on the business end of it, the um, starter kit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I believe the SDK would let you do any of that kind of stuff. Hmm. Cool. Like what you explained, too. So you're going to do that and sell that for lots of money? Oh, yeah, yeah, no. There, yeah. I know that there's programs out there that do that. Because I mean, you can't get a, uh, you can't win anything on eBay by just going and looking at something and bidding on it. You have to, you have to be I think the big sharp. part of the development side from the guys that I've worked with is managing hundreds of auctions simultaneously. It's, yeah. You just can't do it with Outlook Express. Right, you right. Know, you really need a tool that's going to track all of the, all of the emails and give you raw. You know, you you buy something on eBay now, you get an automated response immediately saying, you know, thanks very much and so forth. There's all these automated emails going on, and it's the software from these SDKs that makes it work. Yeah, true. So that's pretty cool. So there you go. You want yeah, to set up fun. a little eBay shop? You can yep. you can do it. So uh, what's next uh, for you after this book? You you gonna uh, are you are you still teaching? Um, I haven't been doing any um, training lately. The um, as you probably know as well, things slowed down just a little bit about a year ago, yeah. maybe almost two years ago now. Um, when .NET first came out, there was that immediate hit of all those early adapters, and then it kind of slacked off. Yeah. Um, and so about that time, we sort of stopped marketing it, and then I've just been so busy with everything else. I haven't even done any training materials yet for 2.0. Um, so I haven't been doing a tremendous amount of that. Uh, I have been <clears throat> um, doing some speaking, which is fun. I'm going to be in uh, at VS Live in San Francisco. I've been at VS Live San Francisco since it started, and I don't even know what year that was, long time ago. That's a long time ago. Yep. Yeah, Back when I it was VBits. From, um, I think I was at the first VBits too. Were you? Um, I understand from um, Robert Scoble that I was like the only woman at that very first one. Probably which I not. Didn't know at the time, not Nobody just the only one. Probably not um, just the only woman presenter, but the only woman period. Yes, <laughs> and I was the only woman presenter the following year, which was the first year I started presenting there. So, yeah. um, so that was kind of kind of fun to find out now years later i hadn't actually noticed i was just so thrilled to to be there and to be talking to other people doing the same thing i was that yeah. i didn't even look around hmm. well uh you know when we come to the end of the show deb i'd like to ask my guests what's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately you know i i listened to a couple of your broadcasts just recently and i knew this question was coming and i probably should have warned you not to ask me that <laughs> I have a husband slash partner that is totally paranoid and will not let me download anything. And since he's my partner at the office, I can't download from here. And since he runs the network at home, I can't download from there either. Okay. So unless I sneak on my youngest daughter's computer, who my husband is sort of disconnected from the rest and lets her download anything, I don't get to download anything at all. Wow. All right. Well, well, let me phrase the question another way. 
Are there some tools out there that you've purchased that you can't live without? Um, I have been, well, it's not really purchased, I guess, but I really like the um, VB um, re, uh, refactor tool. Uh-huh. Um, and that's not really a purchase thing, but I, right. like, I like that a lot. Um, we've been using both the Infragistics grid and the Component 1 grid and have been um, uh, working with both of those for different clients, but I haven't used the 2.0 version of either of those either. We're trying to do the 2005 app that we're working on right now without any third-party components just to see how far we can get just with the um, stuff that's built in. And so far, the requirements are easy enough that that's not been a problem. But <clears throat> yeah, oh. so not very helpful there either. I'm afraid. No, no, that's very helpful. Yeah, we do you use both um, Windows and web versions of those grids. Um, I haven't used the web version of Component One, um, but we have used the web version of um, the Infragistics, mm -hmm. and um, on several projects since the beginning of time. Yeah. The other thing that I had the opportunity to do about six months ago was actually learn how to use Crystal Reports. Uh huh. I had been always giving that to someone else to do. You know, somebody let somebody else do the reports. Um, but I actually did a couple myself and was um, surprised that that tool's got some really cool things. It's got a pretty steep learning curve because the UI isn't quite. You know, when you double-click, you expect something to happen, and it doesn't. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, they don't seem to follow the rules with that sort of stuff. <laughs> exactly. But some of the features, like how you hook up, because um, I use a lot of stored procedures, and so I did it all schema-based, and it worked really slick um, to create all the crystal just based on my schemas from my stored procedures. Nice. Um, that .NET, of course, let me create, and it worked Oh, really nicely. I was I was way more impressed than I expected to be. Yeah. Well, uh, did you get your Xbox 360 yet? Haven't yet. I think we're going to wait till Christmas. Um, yeah. I had actually won the Xbox that we have at a Microsoft event. So my husband keeps saying, ah. "Why don't you win another one for us?" But <laughs> so far, that hasn't worked. But my favorite game of all time is Mercenaries. Have you played that? No, no. I oh, it is great for blowing stuff up. Cool. You get to blow up just all sorts of stuff. Helicopters, you get to drive in the helicopters and blow stuff up. It's it's absolutely fabulous if you really are into blowing stuff up. What's the uh, one that Mark Miller was showing us in England, Richard? Serious Sam? No, no, that was that was just a fun one he brought on the road trip. But it was a driving one, a driving uh, Xbox game. He showed us a demo of, and the thing was just a car, just you know, blowing just everything, destroying everything in its around path. It and it was madness. It was insane. Drive something. I can't remember. I'll find out for you. We'll Being the very nerdy family we are, though, um, and my youngest one would be embarrassed that I said that because she feels like she should be excluded from the whole nerdiness of our family. But <laughs> um, My husband and I played Halo 2 for our last wedding anniversary. Ah, cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Cooperative, of course. Cooperative and not... Naked? <laughs> oh come on i'm not saying <laughs> now, now there's an anniversary right there there you go get a bottle a couple of beers you know some champagne or whatever yep okay little halo too and, uh, I, you and on that note deb i'd like to thank you very much for being on the show finally it's been great talking to you it's great to see you at the launch of course and 
been reading your books for years and of course we've seen each other at various events throughout the years and it's just darn good to catch up with you yeah thank you it was fun um coming to, to participate i appreciate you having me all right good luck on your book okay. we'll be looking for that and uh we'll see you around okay. thanks thanks to everybody who uh participated on the show jeff uh Maciolik out in the sound room and richard camel vancouver deb thanks again good night everybody have a good week .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a toy boy. Heart